Good morning, everyone. My name is Sophia Besch. I'm here with Ian Bond and John Springford. And Camino Motera Martinez is going to call in from Brussels. Hello, everyone. Hello. You've all contributed to a report, uh, Europe After Remain, um, where you talk about an agenda for the UK after a Remain vote. Ian, why do you think that it's important to have a vision for the UK in the EU after Remain? Because if we just go back to how the UK has been before, which is to say grumbling in a corner about almost every initiative taken by the EU, I don't think that this debate in the UK about the relationship with the EU is ever going to go away. It's very important that the Prime Minister takes the rhetoric that he has been using during the campaign about how important the EU is to the security and the prosperity of Britain and he uses that to build a new relationship so that people actually can see that the the UK is benefiting from its EU membership and the rest of the EU can see that having a cooperative relationship with the UK brings benefits to both sides. Mm. And don't you think there would be a great appetite to sort of go back to business as usual, to leave that whole complicated EU business behind? Well, that's going to be enormously tempting, and the EU faces such a lot of other crises. There are lots of reasons for the EU just to go back to firefighting. But it, I don't think that any organization does well if all it ever does is crisis management. Right. It's really important that, uh, that the EU tries to find the areas in which it can really make a difference and the, the projects that it can carry forward to try and make its environment better. Camino, Ian mentioned the migration crisis. The UK is not in Schengen. It is not a so-called frontline state like Italy or Greece. Could UK membership in the EU make any difference at all to the migration crisis? It could indeed, because even though the UK is not in Schengen, it is part of what we call the Dublin system, so the system that manages um, asylum in, in Europe. And the UK has, has put a lot of emphasis on resettling refugees directly from third countries, which is one of the ideas on the table to solve or at least to, to soften a bit the impact of the refugee crisis. So um, a UK that is uh, that has solved its existential problems with the EU as um, it's back um, in the game. Could indeed help very much uh, to reshape the European asylum system. Um, and once the, the EU question is settled, it would be to, to be able to actually say something and to actually push a bit for for this resettlement idea, which I think uh, would be a good thing for Europe. One important argument in the Leave campaign was the EU's protectionism that stops the EU from trading with important partners. Is that just something that the UK would have to live with if it stayed in the EU, John? It's certainly true that uh, there are member states of the EU who are less keen on free trade than, than the UK. But I think the Leave Camp's argument that the EU is this thoroughgoing protectionist, uh, you know, massively regulatory organisation is, is overblown. Um, we've seen the levels of regulation in other EU member states converge on, on the UK's comparatively liberal approach over the last 20 years. Mm. And there is, there is more that can be done um, at the EU level, both to boost trade within the European Union through the single market process and also to try and improve its trading relations with countries around the world. Ian, we've heard in the past that UK trade with Commonwealth countries could be an alternative for a UK outside of the EU. But for a UK inside the EU, could that also be part of Cameron's strategy? 
Yes, very much so. Uh, it's not possible, I think, to make the, the Commonwealth a, a substitute for the EU in trade terms. Uh, but certainly uh, free trade between the EU and countries like Australia and above all India would bring quite considerable benefits. Now, there are some political challenges there, particularly in, in respect of India, where Cameron would have to concede probably some freer movement for Indian workers into the EU and especially the UK. But the benefits in terms of unlocking a really enormous market uh, would be very considerable. One of the one of the difficulties that we're facing with the, the the big trade agreements that the EU has been negotiating recently is that there is an increasing discomfort. So TTIP, for example, is um, is is really struggling, uh, partly because of some mistruths which are being told about it that mm. it would uh, you know in Britain that it would really damage the NHS, for example, which isn't really true, and also because I think of hostile hostility to um, to the United States. I mean, we shouldn't overemphasize its impact on our, on the EU economy. And if we're really talking about uh, the liberalization of trade, then the single market process is the is the really key thing and extending the single market um, into uh, some areas of services would be would probably have a much bigger impact, I think. You talk about the single market, that was a big argument on the Remain side. I think a lot of Brits would have voted to stay in the EU, to stay in the single market. And there is this idea to expand it, to include the service industry. How realistic is that? Well, it's going to be very difficult. One of the reasons why services markets um, tend to be relatively national is because they're more regulated. It's quite hard um, if you're a consumer, say, buying some accountancy services from an accountant to know whether that accountant's going to be any good. So governments quite often intervene to, say, try and keep standards high by having like professional guilds or insisting mm -hmm. on professional qualifications. So it's much more difficult for the EU's regulatory process to create common standards in these areas. And I think there are two things that the EU can do. One is to um, just go with those services sectors which are most tradable. Don't bother with these broad cross-cutting agreements, but try and really think about um, the services sectors which can be traded and which the EU can do most to boost trade. Um, and the other thing that it can do is to try and have a more flexible regulatory approach. One idea that we have is to make use of, it's a slightly wonky term, but 29th regimes where the EU says, here's our regime for governing this particular services market um, and companies can opt into that regime and then must be able to, to do business across the union. But if companies want to stay being regulated by their member state, then that's absolutely fine too. And that's something that the UK could support? I think that's something that the UK would get strongly behind. Yeah, the UK has a lot to win from having a more integrated EU services market and I think it would, would certainly get behind such an agenda. Ian, I just want to quickly touch on foreign policy. I think it's fair to say that the referendum preparation has made for a rather inward-looking UK over the last couple of years, but that hasn't always been the case. So, for example, uh, the UK used to be a very active player in the times of EU enlargement. And in the report, you argue that enlargement is no longer really an option for the EU. Could you just explain that a little bit and talk about other foreign policy areas in which the UK could get involved? Yeah. I mean, I rather regret that uh, enlargement seems to be off the menu for the foreseeable future, but it's clear that it's not a priority for the Juncker Commission. We're looking at a period when no new member states will be, um, will be joining the EU. 
the the climate in Europe is now against further enlargement for the time being. That may not always be the case, but with the exception of a few small Balkan countries, uh, which which are already on the path, I, I don't see that uh, countries in Europe are interested in offering a membership perspective to Ukraine, Georgia, Moldova. The Turkey accession process is barely moving forward at all. So I think we have to find new ways of, of dealing with our neighbours if we cannot make them an offer of full membership. The UK, if it really started to give a strong political push to these things, could have significant influence. Camino, one of the policy areas for which it would be very tempting for Britain to not get too closely involved would surely be justice and home affairs policies. There is a great level of disagreement in the Tory party over EU measures in this field, and you could easily argue that it would be best for the British government to just keep its head down. Yes, it would. The UK has a very special position in just and home affairs, and it has managed sometimes to irritate its partners by cherry-picking measures that it likes and just opting out from those that it doesn't like that much. So it would be indeed tempting for the UK to go back to this position in which uh, it selects uh, whichever measure uh, fits them better. But I think it would be a very good thing for, for the UK and for Europe as well, for the European Union, if the UK uh, kept on being a leader in, in some of, of the most important areas uh, of just home affairs, uh, namely counterterrorism and the uh, exchange of, of data for intelligence and law enforcement purposes. And there we have seen the UK can actually make an impact because it has this experience on, on, on police and on intelligence, and it has also this special relationship with the, with the United States that helps advancing some of the most important measures uh, that the European Union can take. There seems to emerge a sense that this referendum could actually be a force for good that uh, it could lead to a stronger Britain and a reformed EU. I'm going to ask all of you, is that reckless optimism? Or is there actually a real chance that Britain in the EU could reinvent itself after this referendum? I mean, I think it's, it's, it will be very difficult for David Cameron in his current position of only having a small majority in the House of Commons um, and with a Tory party that has been riven, split down the middle between Eurosceptics and um, pro-Europeans to be able to make a very outward play to be absolutely at the centre of leading the EU. But having said that, there has to be some kind of strategy uh, employed by Number 10 to try and deal with the aftermath of the uh, of the referendum vote. And uh, as we've said in this podcast, there are, there are two ways to do that. One is uh, to actually try and take a lead of the EU strategy to try and deal with its internal and external problems. Or it's to move back to the status quo ante of basically just uh, following and, and not doing very much. Um, and I think in the long run, often I don't have a great deal of hope uh, for politicians uh, being long-sighted, but in the long run, it would be a much better strategy for, for the UK to, to actually be strategic rather than just to react the entire time to EU initiatives. Yes, I agree with John that it would not be easy for Cameron and the, and, and the UK government to take leading position in the European Union. 
Um, at the same time, I think it will be very welcome uh, by all the member states, most of which, all of which, uh, as we have uh, seen in the last weeks, do not want the UK to leave the European Union. To have a UK that is more engaged, that is uh, more positive, and that actually helps driving some of the reforms that the European Union is in much uh, need of at the moment. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's optimism, but it's not reckless. The situation in the Conservative Party is such that it doesn't really matter what David Cameron does. He is not going to win back the support of the Eurosceptics who have spent the last few months hurling abuse at him. Uh, but what he can do is something which is in the national interest, and that is to put the UK back as one of the leading powers at the heart of European decision-making. And that's what I think he ought to do, and I hope very much that it's what he will do. Thank you very much.